Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Tell Me The Score. This week we're talking to the wonderful Christian Henson, one of the sharpest pencils in the musical box. Really lovely interesting guy and I can speak as someone having worked for Christian who treats musicians extremely well and uh, that's a, a precious commodity in our world. Um, we talk about his approach to composition, what got him started and also his amazing successful business Spitfire which is a, a, a sample library uh, company. So there's, there's a lot to uh, there's a lot to get into. Um, enjoy. I started by asking Chris how he got started. It was it was a documentary about Beethoven and there was that da 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 dum whatever that is. And I just was like, I want to play that, not realizing it was an orchestra. And um so I don't know why it was a piano that was picked, but I I guess that the greatest privilege I think I've had um with my upbringing was supportive parents who would just go that extra mile to buy a broken, dodgy piano and to get me into piano lessons and that kind of stuff. I think that's uh, a truly wonderful thing. Before I joined uh, 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 this podcast, Tom, I I realised that you and I uh, are uniquely similar in a way that I, I, I don't think there's anyone else in the music industry that I've met who has grown up with two professional actors in show business yes. and have then gone into music. I, I personally feel that growing up in a theatrical household was, was a great thing. Did, did you feel that it was a positive influence for you? Yes. I mean, I think that what made me interested in, I guess, getting into the industry was that I was aware of the artifice from the outset. I can't remember a, a time where... I wasn't going backstage or sitting in a voiceover studio or, um, you know, watching something being filmed. So I was aware of it as a legitimate job. And, and I think that my parents, I mean, they were incredibly snobbish about people who had what other people would consider to be proper jobs. And they terribly refer to them as civilians. So I think there was a bit of conditioning there that that whatever I did, it would definitely not be a traditional job. Um, but they also did a great job of, of putting me off the actual profession of acting, which I am, I, I hate to say it, thankful for. Yes, I often feel that I'm relieved that I didn't follow my parents into acting. Um, and also uh, the luxury of having seen under the hood of the business, but also not having to phone your agent every five minutes to, to find out why you haven't worked for six months. Fickle would be an understatement. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you know but, but both of our sets of parents are hugely, I mean, and, and rarely, you know, it's, a, it's rare to be that that successful, but they're still having to, you know, they were, you know, my mum was still doing auditions and, you know, well into her 80s. Yes, know, I and, still help my mum with a self-tape audition on a regular basis. And it's a it's a very peculiar form of indignity. Um, 
do you think that music is a kinder profession? Perhaps not kinder, but there's more rationality about knowing who's good and, and who's not. It's it's really, really obvious if you're playing out of tune, but it's not necessarily that obvious if you're phoning in an acting performance or missing your mark or fluffing your lines. I, d- I think to a degree it's slight, slightly less subjective, whereas acting is totally subjective and it's who you're reading your lines with and and it's it's the how the director envisages it. Whereas, you know, I know if the shit hit the fan, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, um, I, I, I could go and, you know, make a cover version band and do do something because I can actually play to a certain degree, you know. I don't, there's always something I can channel. So what are your instruments? You mentioned the piano. Yeah, it was I mean to be to be honest, I I think I'm an undiagnosed dyslexic because it's now clear to me, I don't know how I did it, but I never ever learned how to read music. I just used to watch my piano teacher and copy her. So I got to about grade five in piano and then uh, there's that weird thing that happens where you've got to do grade five theory. And that really kind of un- unhinged me. And um, yeah, so I'm that. that's as far as I got, really. I did A-level music. I was going to go to uh, the Guildhall to study composition, but it was clear to me that without the theoretical chops, I was out to see, really, at that point. And it was in the days before the internet, so I didn't know that Irvin Berlin didn't read music and Hans Zimmer, I think, doesn't read music. Um, and indeed, I hadn't visited Scotland by that point where no one reads music, but there's some pretty bloody brilliant players up here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you know Lorn. Um, I sort of imagine that you might do Lorn Balfe with you both having a connection to Scotland. I bump into him in the business lounge in Edinburgh Airport frequently. So Lorne says that being able to use MIDI, because he is dyslexic, um, really liberated him, uh, you know, having felt that the staves and paper were an obstacle. When he discovered logic and and that way of interacting with music, he felt liberated by the technology. And I wondered if you had also felt that. Yeah. I mean, again, because I had very supportive parents. You know, I was bought a computer. I I also, I was a, I was a massive manipulator because my parents divorced when I was very young. And I'm born on Christmas Day, so right. yeah, I used to do this. Yeah. Well, hence my name. But that, so I used to, um, I used to do this kind of for mum, from mum and dad for my Christmas and birthday. Can I have an Acorn Electron? And um, and so yeah, got into tech, and and it, I, I felt more of an affinity with that than I did with um, the theory of music. So do you remember a time when you first, you know, that that playing translated into writing? Uh, and you you decided you wanted to put something commit something to to paper i just i was always interested in composing more than oh there's what's that thing they say if you want to stop a conversation dead just say an orchestra's like a cover band isn't it <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what i've and i think that that's kind of quite an interesting point that you know for a lot of people learning an instrument um, it's about getting as good as possible on that. And and for me, it wasn't that. It was about, uh, I always saw it as a, a device that would enable me to, to compose. Um, so I used to get quite frustrated that all I was allowed to do was play covers on it, albeit covers by, you know, um, Tchaikovsky or whatever. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I just, it just, it, it, it was always just about improvising and, 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 and my, process has not changed to this day it's basically 
when it stops sounding like a set of mistakes, um, that'll be a composition. Yeah. So I'd imagine now that tech is a huge part of your work. Do you ever have that feeling that the technology is running the show to a degree, that your dependence on on the, the, the workstation and the looking at a grid is something that might hold you back? And if, if so, how do you mitigate that? I think that it can. And I think that it's it's very... You can hear it on telly. I'm not a big fan of the dominance of computers in our space. Um, and I'm I'm looking forward to it bedding back into one of the many tools that we use. It's, it's been really dominant for the last, I would say, 20 years. And for me, computers are, are like fancy word processors become calculators. And they tend to encourage you to work in the way that they like working. So to the grid, everything clean and sparkly. Um, and I think that um, it just lends to, I don't know, if you listen to an old Motown track, it's like it's a bunch of people in one room and it's all early reflections and it's kind of loose and it's got that groove and all of that stuff. I'm a massive fan of 1970s R&B and so groove for me is is crucial. So I think it is a bit of a, a battle. And I think without getting too far ahead of myself, with the emergence of AI, I think that we're going to need to become more human in our compositions uh, in order to make stuff that doesn't sound like an AI bot could make it. And I think that that's one of the things I, I find very difficult when watching television in particular, is this form of orchestral music that kind of works with computers and is the easiest way of doing it. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I have to battle against that. I suppose the dependence on those on that that tech is is inbuilt in it in a way because you'll be sent a movie file and will most likely drop that straight into Logic or Pro Tools. So you are immediately in that realm. But also often, you know, a scene would have been cut to temp. So temp is temporary soundtrack. And that that piece of temp music, which may be from a film or a bit of library music or whatever, is likely to have been made on a computer too. Um, and the editor has edited the cuts to that music, which has been done to a grid. So you're kind of, you're locked in before it even goes in the box. Um, and I think that, you know, something that, I've admired of, say, the, the, the work of Dario Marinelli, a fa fantastic Oscar-winning film composer, is that he doesn't work to click, he doesn't work to the grid. And he uses Tempe as, as yet another kind of axis of expression, which is, I think, we've kind of abandoned, which is extraordinary. Yes, because it's an operation to change a tempo in logic. It's not an, an organic process yeah it's, it's an absolute faff and that's what i mean by being encouraged it's like do you have time to you know we we write in logic it likes us to work to a click um directors like us to be able to change stuff and it's much easier to change stuff if you're working to a grid and also if you are going to work with live musicians and you've got you've done it completely free of click you've got to create a click track, which is incredibly time consuming. And you multiply that by 60 cues in a film. 
um, and it really adds to the process. And 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 as you know, you've you've done so many thousands of sessions, you know that an unpredictable clip click also needs to be listened to a little bit and learned. So it it just it holds up the process. So we are, you know, there is a there's a gentle kind of pressure to just stay at one tempo. It's interesting that you say that. It's interesting that you mentioned pressure. There's so much pressure funneled. You know, it's part of the process of making a movie is that you're coming in quite late in the process in the sense that the stuff that needs to be cooked by you happens after everyone's done their stuff, done their acting, and they've run out of money and the accountants are getting a bit twitchy. Time's running out, money's running out, but also the what's changed since I started is the process is no longer linear because there used to be like the film used to have to go to the lab, you know, and be processed and colour graded and all of that kind of stuff. This stuff all happens in, in concert. So what's, I mean, for example, you know, I, I used to, when I was working on films, I used to work with the director at least once a week, sit down together, work on it. I haven't had a director in my studio for 15 years. Um, and in fact, like when I was doing Poirot and stuff like that, the director wouldn't even be present at the dub because they'd be off doing you know, some colour grading or or whatever. Um, so it's a non-linear process, which has become stacked. And because it's a non-linear process, it's like, when is it finished? Let's, let's talk a little bit about the early stages and the approach that you're made. When, when a project first comes to you, um, what do you sense? Are they showing you storyboards? Are they perhaps even getting you involved at the script stage? In an ideal world, yes. Uh, does it often happen... No. Um, so, I mean, when you start out, you tend to pitch more. You tend to be brought on later. Um, I think something that tends to happen is um, you get called in as the cavalry because maybe they've let a composer go and all the other composers are booked up to the hilt. Um, but in an ideal world, um, you've maybe worked with the director before. You have a lingua franca and and they'll send you a script and be polite and ask if you're interested in doing it. And, um, and you know, if, 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 if you're brought on board early enough, I'll often give the director some music to um, play on headphones on set and indeed cut, cut temp to. So again, you're not, you're not being um, cordoned in by this thing called temp love, um, which is when they fall in love with the temporary score. Um, and certainly on a lot of projects recently, um, directors have, I think that they are under so much pressure because of the non-linearity of the process that they understand that if they cut to your music, original music that you've made, just kind of on, on spec, if you like, um, that, um, and they can get that, that kind of, um, sold to the executives and the producers that their lives become a lot easier. Um, uh, so I think that they're learning that um, that's that's a much better kind of process. And when it occurs that the the spinning beach ball finds its way to your brain and you just don't know what to write, how how do you? Well, perhaps it never happens to you, but do you have a way of coping with that? I mean, is it a is it a panicky feeling? I think it's. I, I think to be honest, it, it's. I always say that writing music for picture is a craft. 
so basically you're building a table and if the table doesn't support food it's it's not functional um if you can add a little bit of artistry to that table if you have time then that's all the better but the job of a film composer is to help the director tell a story and i think it's about that form of collaboration is what is what is the role of the music is it a narrator is it is it describing what you're seeing is it describing what you're not seeing is it who are we who are we with are we with this character or uh, are we commenting on the entire cast so as a consequence there is a set of specific the specificity there um that 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 helps you not feel that you've got a blank screen um something that i love doing i i'm not really a big fan of doing descriptive music i think that 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 uh, vision and sound effects and dialogue do that you know does that fantastically so for me it's i love describing the consequence and the context of of a scene and in so doing um i always say to directors i think that you have to write if you're scoring someone's emotions you have to write in a way that they would relate to so if you've got some i don't know a thriller about a bricklayer um you're you're not going to score it with something Wagnerian because it's unlikely that that bricklayer would understand or relate to that music. So it's a very poor example. So so there is a, a a whole bunch of well we've got this it's this person it's this style we've got this this arc and this story to tell. Um, that kind of sets out the stall before you even start putting putting um, you know your hands on the keyboard. You mentioned Poirot and taking over, you know, taking on a project like that, taking over from someone as amazing as Chris Gunning must be a daunting prospect. You know, you've got to fall in and take on the style of a show that's already running. You're getting on a horse that's already galloping. Um, but you also want to put your own stamp on it. What what was that experience like? Is it a, is it a scary thing or are you just taking great, great care of by the producers? Yeah. And I, I remember very clearly um, taking that on. And and basically they asked me to do it because they wanted it to be more cinematic. They wanted it to be more filmy. And I just, I think that I got to that. I think it was when I became a parent, I had to just cast away the imposter syndrome and understand that my job is writing music to picture. Just get on with it. And... Um, so I actually just started to embrace what I call my own personal musical heritage. You and I may like the same composers. We might like even the same albums, but we'll have different favorites within those albums. So, you know, I grew up with a dad who was a music lover and I watched lots of films and you just absorb all of this music. And so I just applied that to what what does it sound like when Christian Henson does Poirot? Well, it's going to have a little bit of Steve Reich in it, whether you like it or not. Um, and but it's just it's again, it's telling the story in a way that's appropriate. And for me, I got into film composing because I wanted to write music for robots and and science fiction and horror. Um, and when I took Poirot, I couldn't believe that I'd been offered it. You know, my background's drum and bass, for God's sake. And um, and I thought it was going to be a tire around my neck. Um, but it was such an honour to be asked, I couldn't turn it down. And it soon became the my favourite job that I've ever done, really. And it was turns out that writing pretty melodies on clarinets 
is lovely. Yes, of course. Yeah, it is about telling stories. Um, it's not. It's not about kind of being cool underneath some picture and getting in the way of dialogue and all of that stuff. Um, I've always been very respectful of the dialogue. You mentioned craft, and I think that's something a lot of people don't realise. Um, and we've both seen it firsthand how hard actors do actually work at at the craft. I mean, aside from the talent, you know, you've got your box for talent and your box for craft. Um, do you think seeing it firsthand was helpful for you and did it influence the way you work? It's a job. It's a job and it's tiring, it's exhausting. I remember my dad was, um, this is years and years and years ago, he was terribly unwell. I mean, really, really not well at all. And he was offered, what's that great part in Twelfth Night? It's a really, it's a big part. Is it Toby Sprout or something like that? Yeah, Toby Belch. Toby Belch. Yes. I mean, one of the best roles. And he was offered that at Stratford. And he said, went to his doctor and said, do you think I'm, I'll be able to do this? And his doctor went, that's only three hours a night. Yeah, it'd be fine. And I remember opening the Evening Standard and Nicholas de Jong, who's a critic, who always hated my dad. Oh, don't worry. He, he hated everyone else as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. He said that this is a career-defining performance as Toby Belch. And my dad did the one performance and then he, he had to go to the, the company manager and say, I cannot do a single another performance of it because he thought he was going to die because um, it was so exhausting. So that was kind of heartbreaking that I was reading this amazing uh, and uh, very atypical review by Nicholas de Jong of my dad and then received a phone call saying that he's, he's, he's um, chucked in the towel. But, you know, I could see the, the, the work that went into uh, um, what, what they were doing. And I, I'm, I'm really aggrieved when um, people who aren't in the arts, which I don't, I think that's a bad word for it anyway, um, seem to belittle it. And, you know, we had a culture minister recently say, you know, why are we teaching the arts when there's, you know, it leads to stuff that aren't careers. And it's like, Sorry, who do you think designs your kind of your your party political leaflets? They probably studied art. They may even have gone to art college. Do you like watching television? <laughs> do you like going to the cinema? It's just it's just bizarre. Yes, I think that disconnect to anyone in the arts is absolutely infuriating. But especially because if someone doesn't go on to make a career in the arts, all those transferable skills that a training in the arts gives you are really tangible empathy playing music being in in doing drama it's all about empathy if you don't if you don't empathize you're not playing with someone yeah and i think just doing it for the sake of it is a is a positive thing i see this you know watching my kids i know that when they walk out into a any kind of a job interview one day not related to the world of creation, that that is going to really help them build their confidence. Essentially, it will have got them closer to the best possible version of themselves that they could be. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's something that I think is kind of interesting with music and something I'm trying to do with my company is, is you know, art shops, you get one in every every city and they're not for professional artists. They're for people who like painting and drawing and using crayons and stuff. When I buy my kids art stuff, 
Um, I don't go, right, okay, let's work on your penmanship for, for two years and then uh, we, we can do a still life. It's like you encourage them to do stuff from your imagination. And I think that it's this idea that you can sit down and kind of pick up an instrument and play music from it um, for pleasure, I think is is so lost. And I think that it it has it has so many positive um, effects on mental health and stuff like that. That's why that you get music therapy and stuff. But um, yeah, I wish there are more mu musical instruments lying around people's houses. You know. Yeah, I, I think it's worth mentioning that if there are parents out there wondering how to get their kids into music, it's really worth just leaving a few instruments out in the house. You know, they'll end up whacking them or scraping them or doing something with them. They'll know that something interesting is happening and there's, there's a journey to be had. My boy came into my studio the other day and he just sat down and started playing the piano. And he, he's only had a couple of lessons and I just went, Joe, what is that piece of music? It's really lovely. You know, I'm just, I'm just making it up as I go along. And it's like eventually they stop just smacking the thing and just start putting putting stuff together. Yeah, I don't know if you had this growing up, but that thing of scripts lying around all over the house as you grew up, that very particular capitalised print and the spacing, the backs of all those scripts became my art paper and where I doodled and yeah. where I coloured, you know. it's And there were just piles and piles and piles of them all over the house. And now, for me, it's I take all of the um, music off the stands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my kids, are, their, their drawing paper is, is, has got staves on the, the other side. Yeah, I don't know how many people outside of the music business will realise the phenomenal amount of paper that goes into recording anything for film or TV. I mean, just forests of the stuff. It's, it's pretty insane, actually. And it's one of those things that, as a player, it reminds you that you are a, a cog in a in a much larger machine of an army of people. Well, I remember going talking to I was probably about 15 talking to a careers advisor at school, you know, everyone got their their 15 minutes. And um I said I'd quite like to go into the film business and they went acting or directing. And it was like, have you not noticed all of those names that come up at the end of a film? There's 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 so many different jobs. And, you know, and that's what's kind of fun. I'd say to kids, you know, if you're into carpentry, you can go into the film business. If you're into accounting, you can go into the film business. It pretty much encompasses everything. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I just, it, it, yeah, it was, for me, it wasn't this. A lot of people go into the music industry, um, particularly I, I went in not from a kind of classical route and I didn't really go in as a composer. I kind of went in through the the dance EDM route and a lot of people who are getting into the music industry were getting into it to become famous and um i really absolutely didn't want to become famous um because i could particularly with my mother i could see that it was a, a, a it was um terribly restricting put it that way um i mean and there were certain periods where absolutely couldn't get on public transport and stuff you know, and she get photographed in the street when she was just going around to get a paper and all of that kind of stuff. And um, so I think it was just being aware that it was an industry and it was an industry that you could be a part of. And there were all of these different jobs. There were these focus pullers and 
you know, and, and, you know, and there was, you know, ADR, you know, knowing at the age of four what ADR meant, you know, and mum's going in, we're just doing some post-syncing and you've got to sit very still. Um, and and it was just like, well, that's the that's the family business. And I'd kind of quite like to go, go into that. Um, and there was a natural, I mean, at no point of my parents, there's never been any kind of nepotism and stuff because the world of music for picture is not connected to that of acting. And I've actually only scored one of my parents once. Yeah, it was Tommy's Honor. It was a golfing film directed by uh, Jason Connery. And my dad was in it. Um, yeah, so I think it was that. It was just being aware that it was was an industry. And my dad was a Saturday dad and used to take us to the cinema a lot. And we went to see Flash Gordon, which very famously, and it was very much part of the hype of the um, the film, was scored by Queen. And Queen were just huge at that point. And I remember going to see it, being very aware of the score and coming out of the cinema and saying to my dad, um, I want to be in a band so I can write music for films. And I remember him saying, you don't have to be in a band. That's an actual job. And I remember I, to this day, I get the butterflies that I got then. Um, of like, oh, that is what I'm going to do. So thinking of like a big score like, you know, Flash Gordon, do you, when you're writing, ever have half an ear um, as to whether you think something's going to be successful? Are you are you able to sort of sideline that that vanity, you know, thinking of what's going to be hummed as people walk down the street and if, if, if their earworms are going to be things that you've come up with, you know, in your studio? I... I don't think that is the job of music uh, for for picture. I think that the best scores are the ones you don't notice. Um, but I think there are there are certain tropes. I'm working on a series where they really want hummable tunes because it's a it's a kind of a trope. It's a there's heroes and there's baddies and goodies, but also it's a franchise. So um, a director said to me, uh, "I want." I want that Star Trek moment. And the Star Trek moment is when you're out of the room and you can hear Star Trek's coming on because it's got that kind of menomic. Um, but where, you know, for me, it's all about getting the approval of the directors and the producers. And hopefully that, they're, that we're all on the same page trying to s tell a story. And for me, I, I, I've kind of started to learn what directors like and what they don't like. And a recent revelation to me is less is so much more i'm stopped i've stopped trying to impress myself compositionally and um my new rule is to help tell the story in the the simplest and most direct form which you know for me can feel kind of quite primitive compositionally um but that always gets the 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 best results with getting approvals from directors and for me, I mean, I, I did a score recently where there were entire cues that was just a solo clarinet on its own. And actually, when you dare to break it down to just a single instrument, that's when directors are really um, thankful, is I think the word. Do you ever find yourself uh, trying to talk a director out of using music in a scene if you, if you think it doesn't need it? Is that a conversation that ever takes place? Um yeah, what I tend to do is offer up too much because there's nothing worse than them being on the dubbing stage 
feeling that there's a hole in the music because often you feel you finished by that point um it's more often than not it's i think you could do that that scene could do with a little bit of help there it's funny i've got i've got an intern working for me at the moment whose dad is a famous actor and i'm scoring his dad and whenever we have spotting sessions i always say to everyone i'm spotting with so spotting is when you sit watch the thing and work out where music's going to go i always say to everyone gathered um so and so's son is here because often and not in the case of this this gentleman but so often you go they're, they're just underplaying it a bit here or they didn't quite nail that scene and you could kind of warm it up with a bit of music uh, so I, yeah i have to pre-warn <laughs> yeah on, on our side of the glass that's a useful skill too just quite simply knowing who's actually in the room and uh <laughs> and being very careful about what we say. I think one of the funniest things is, you know, we're aware of the environment that we work in, but so often directors and producers who really want to go and bitch about someone in the control room, go into the live room to do that, and not aware that there's about 40 microphones around. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, occasionally we've had a scenario where a composer has asked the engineer to cut the live room feed to the control room so that they can uh, <laughs> bitch more freely about <laughs> um, a nightmare director that they've they've been working with. I, I do think the the particular pressure of making films, you know, if you're going to fall out with someone, it, it's the perfect environment in which to do that. Um, yes, it's. I have to say, it's changed. And, and I'm not going to be one of those grumpy old, not like, like, like good old days. I'm, I'd say it's changed for the better. Um, basically, uh, it's it's now called content, and it's it's a volume game. I mean, I don't know if you've, you've noticed, like on Netflix, that documentaries that could be an hour long are six hours long in six parts. So, what what these streamers and broadcasters require is people to be highly productive and highly effective. And um, so what I'm finding is there's a new breed of director who don't come from that like auteur kind of des desire to be in control of everything. They're, they're, they're a decision maker that help facilitate creation of this content. Um, and I think you can do that and still it be, you know, really well done. And um, it, it's just relying on people who can work with people who are experienced um, and that's certainly my attitude towards what I do now. Um, I think that 
I think one of the really crucial things that I now do is what can I bring to it that they will really benefit from, but also will get the best work out of me. So talking about this project I'm working on, it's two years. So it's something like 40 odd episodes. It's two years of my life. I live in Scotland and I just thought I just can't be going down to London twice a week to record musicians down there, no matter how much I love doing that. But it's just it's going to really, really have a bad effect on my family life. So from the pitch stage, I said to them, how about a folk John Williams score? And they went, oh, like the sound of that. And in so doing, I'm just working with loads of folk musicians up in Scotland. And that is giving them the best of me because I'm not, it's not destroying my family life. And I think that that's something that's, that's really important is, is, well, how can I give them the best of me? And if that's um, not going to be the case, if you're not going to get on with these people or you're not on the same page, then it's not, it's not worth wasting that amount of your kind of professional life in my humble opinion. The way we work has, has changed a lot recently. And I, one of the ways the nuts and bolts of recording in particular has changed and past, partially a result of how we were forced to work back in lockdown is that there's a lot more remote recording now. And I've certainly benefited from that hugely, you know, composers who I met remotely uh, three years ago, three or four years ago nearly, are now real people and I meet them in actual studios and uh you know having having done everything for them at home is is remote working something that you've embraced in in, in the way that you work yeah and and I've always been quite a pragmatic composer probably because I've always worked on pretty low budget stuff you know so if there's a split in the in the trumpets you know and someone goes we need to take that again I go no because it's a jeep exploding no one's going to hear it um and um and I think that during lockdown, I think we had all of us had to become a bit more pragmatic. And in so doing, by not being present and so controlling of the environment, I found that actually remotely I got some really interesting stuff back that I doubt I would have got if I'd been there present. I don't know about you, but what I find when I get a musician to do a remote session is is they just try and cover all bases. So they'll They'll do a kind of straight version, a fruity version. And so it gives you these choices which aren't necessarily choices that you have prescribed. And I think that that makes it, in a funny way, more collaborative. Yeah, I think as a as a remote recording musician myself, I think that I would always aim to give lots of options because you're parceling it up and sending it off to a client and you don't want them to come back and say uh, that they haven't got what they need so you quite often give them bags and bags of options and it's not uncommon for for the for the option that's actually furthest from what they'd imagined to be the one that piques their curiosity um yeah it, it can be a really collaborative process uh, and that's not something you'd necessarily imagine well this job i'm speaking of um i've actually i i've got, got a really good friend who's a fantastic composer she's called joe patterson and she's from here and she knows this very small world of what they call traditional music up here. And she has started running the sessions and I don't attend because I get more choices. There's something I, it's, I feel very coy, you know, when I'm producing a, it's like, oh, sorry, can we do it again? And I, I don't understand how that whistle works. 
Um, and she she's just great at kind of going, let's give Christian as many options as possible. So that's a new development. And I don't, um, I don't when that when these tracks get sent off to be mixed, I don't check mixes anymore, because if I check them, I'll go, could this be a little bit? And it just doesn't make that much of a difference. And if there's something I really don't like when I'm at the dubbing stage, I'll just I'll just have a little fiddle with the stems and stuff like that. So since the pandemic, I've become way less controlling, and it makes it a much less stressful job because you're part of a team not this kind of tyrant. I, I'd meant to ask you before, actually, and uh, it seems like you do, but um, I often hear composers saying, go to the dub, always go to the dub. That's where, you know, your contribution will get massacred and your music will get bastardised and, uh, you know, you'll you'll miss out on your Oscar. Yeah, it used to be that... Um, I mean, I know of some old-school dubbing engineers who would just literally say, no, no composers are allowed. Um, particularly in this country, there's this, there's, and, and I think that that has passed. There used to be this um, this sense of, do we really have to have music in this? Can't we just do the sound effects and the dialogue? And the the sound crew are kind of all clubbed together, and then this kind of becloaked composer comes in and says, T "Turn me up." Um, but I, I again, I'm feeling it's become a lot more kind of craft like, and I feel a lot more as part of the crew. But also. Um, I've there mistakes happen, and um, I've watched films that I haven't been present at for the dub, where stem has gone out by a thirty-two or you know a, a semi demi or whatever it is quaver, um, and only I and other composers will will know that there's something seriously wrong there, and what an idiot Henson is. Um, the other day I went to a dub. And some drums that were meant to be in the right speaker were coming out of the left surround. And no one had heard it. And I pointed pointed that out. So, yeah, so that I think it's really crucial um, that in order to protect your professional integrity, that you are at least present at a playthrough at the dub. But the other thing that is also crucial is regardless of what DAW, Digital Audio Workstation, you use, you have to learn how to use Pro Tools because that is now universal in dubbing studios. And explaining to someone how to do a music edit is absolutely, it's incredibly time-consuming and these facilities cost a lot of money. So you need to be able to jump on and go, I can fix that better for you. Or I, I can, you know, if that's overrunning and it goes to, you know, past the end of the credit roll, um, I can shift it around. Um, otherwise, you're relying on someone who isn't musical, isn't a music editor, um, to fiddle around with your stuff. Yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't go anywhere near a fader in a control room without making sure it was 100% okay with the engineer. I think that's just a recognition of a, a hierarchy or just a very clear delineation of roles. And an engineer would never ask me if they could come and check the tension of my A string. And I I think you have to reflect that in the way you behave in the other direction. Well, yesterday I was in a dub and I, I actually said to the engineer, do you mind if I point at your screen? You know, because it can be a little bit like, what the fuck, man? You know, um, yeah, and my rule is uh, I'm there as head of department for music and that's all, that's all I listen to. I don't listen to it as a whole. And even if I feel an explosion is out of sync and stuff. I'm just, I'm just, it's not, it, it's not what I'm there for. You know, it's, um, you know, if, if something is clashing with the music, um, 
you know, I'll often say, listen, I can take that stem out so the sound effect doesn't clash. But it's just you, you really have to stay in your lane. And, um, the, the you know, films are very hierarchical. There's no getting away from that. And I think it's very important that uh, you respect that. Yeah, and, and that comes into another thing I wanted to talk about, which is that your other life and the the amazing stuff that you've done in the world of sample libraries and sampling. Oh, thank you. When did you think mm-hmm. that that's what the world needed? When did you when did you decide that that was that was a viable business proposition? How did it start? It was. I think what's made it successful is it's because it was something I needed. Uh, basically, I was working on these low budget productions. Uh, orchestral was all in because. Because of sampling, I think. I think Hans Zimmer really, and, and I think that he's the godfather of orchestral samples. Uh, he he just, him and like David Arnold and Massive Attack made orchestras cool again. And and it was largely to do with technology. And um, so I was being asked to do these orchestral scores, but on like BBC drama budgets. And so could only afford to work with 12 musicians. And the only samples that were available in those days just sounded like, the sinking of the Titanic. You're just enormous sounds. And again, you know, you've got to match what's going on on screen. And if you're just over egging the pudding. So basically I just, I wanted to find a way of, of, of creating some small and quiet chamber sounds. 95% of our music is quiet. The last act of a film tends to get a bit loud, um, but it's, it's quiet. And these samples were just so bombastic so it was about that. And I, I listened to the samples that were being made and I couldn't understand why sampling, the way that they recorded it, was different to the way that I know films are recorded. Um, so we just decided to replicate the same environment. Um, we record to tape even. And uh, we knew that you can noise reduce this stuff and to get them to, to get musicians to play quietly, but also to not play things perfectly because you can create a perfect tone, but that's not what you're creating when you're creating music. It's not a perfect tone. So it was, it was a combination of those things. And we put this stuff together and it just, it, it, it worked. And it meant that I could represent what my music was going to sound like to a director without it going from this enormous kind of Mahler sound sound into something that was small and more appropriate for a BBC drama. So that was the, the root of it. But, the first thing I said to to Paul prior to our very first session, which was at Air Studios, second violins, I remember we did first, um, is that my grandfather was also in show business and he formed the uh, Actors Union um, Equity and also the Actors Benevolent Fund. And I said to Paul, you're with a union lad, so um, we have to pay the musicians royalties. Um, which wasn't wasn't um, isn't specified by the musicians' union at all. It was just a, a choice that we made. Chris, I've got to interrupt you because I I've played on sample libraries for for big companies, sample libraries for um, yeah. notation software, for uh, you know, private libraries for big Hollywood composers, and never once have I been paid any kind of a royalty except for yours it's one of the things that puts musicians off doing sample libraries because in a sense they're doing themselves out of a 
out of a job in the future. I don't know whether the data supports that, but that's the that's the notion. That's the the sense. I don't see myself as uh, a supplier to the music industry. I see myself as part of it. It's an industry that I'm. So it's of everyone's benefit that we all prosper out of this stuff. And I think that, you know, a new technology should equal a new revenue stream for, for, for musicians. But also, as someone who produces music, I know, for example, when you, when you piss off a singer, that's it. You're not going to get a good take out of them. You know, that's, you, you, you're destroyed. And, you know, Tom, you know, when you go into a beautiful sounding room with a beautiful instrument, with some nice notes to play, it brings the best out of you. But also being treated nicely helps as well. Um, and because you are, uh, you are channeling yourself into your instruments, a very physical thing. And the interpretation is based on emotion. And if someone's, you know, taking the piss out of you, it's just not going to be as good, even if you're trying to make it good. That's my feeling. You know, I think it's not just your feeling, Chris. I think that's that's a fact that in studios there are those lovely sessions where you feel valued as a musician and the client's genuinely happy that you're there and excited to work with you and see what you can contribute and there are other sessions where you're it's the, the atmosphere is very different and it's, it feels like a factory floor it's a very different relationship and it's not necessarily dependent on the size of the session yeah and it's a funny that's a funny dynamic that isn't it well i used to work in catering and it's like, do you really want to piss off the people who are making stuff that you're going to put in your mouth? <laughs> but but it's just a t and it's not about being it's not it's not about being generous. It's about if you treat people slightly nicely, they'll try to treat you nicely back. It's just a simple dynamic. And you know what I find in 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 um, I think that when I started as a composer, I found it really difficult working with musicians because there was an inherent distrust um there was some terrible stuff that happened in the 70s and 80s with with musicians getting ripped off and stuff but i've i've seen a real with the, your generation of musician there is this real collaborative spirit and particularly you know when it comes to people who aren't theoretically knowledgeable there is a generosity there that i really appreciate now and you know uh you work with you know uh, musicians up here it's just it's like let's 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 work together to make this the best it can be yeah and i do think in the other direction you're so right when someone turns up who might have written something yeah magical but they don't necessarily know what a quaver is <laughs> it doesn't really occur to me to ridicule someone for that reason it's just great good for them they've created something that didn't exist until they created it and they're giving everybody work and they've trained in a different a, a different way and that's neither here nor there. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the thing that a lot of people forget w with film, well, a lot of people don't know with film co composition is you're not paid, that, that is not what you're actually paid to do. What you're paid is to be a head of department. That's what the producer wants from you. It's a lot of people when they're trying to break into this industry go, I'm a wonderful composer. Why won't anyone give me any work? It's like, well, because you have no experience as a head of department. So there are many, many, facets to being a film composer yes composing a tune is i would say 0.5 percent of it um being able to put it to picture being able to program something that sounds like an orchestra being able to drum program pr produce you know eq engineer orchestrate copy conduct well 
there's no such thing as a Renaissance person that can do all of those things. So whilst X composer may be a fantastic orchestrator and be able to conduct an orchestra, it's likely that they're not a very good drum programmer. You know, I mean, I'm I'm generalizing massively, but yeah, and and so really, the the only real constant in the work of being a media composer is that you are ushering a a score to its completion and i don't think it's it's a surprise to anyone that on these very very high pressured big jobs often there will be more than one composer one will be credited and then there'll be other composers who'll get some kind of publishing income and and you know they call it ghostwriting additional music whatever you want um but really it's the it's just down to the composer to deliver and in fact what's quite interesting certainly on computer games and stuff um I've heard from composers in in the states that producers will ask, "Do you have a team?" As in, is there going to be more than one composer on this? Because I know that we are going to throw you so much stuff that you've got to do quickly that you will crumble unless there's more than one of you. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't quite realise in the closing stages of a massive movie, um, and I've I've got to be careful about which projects I talk about. So I'll just yeah. say a massive Hollywood movie. You know, it's not unusual for there to be a team of, I don't know, 10 orchestrators put up at the Dorchester yeah. for as long as it takes. And they'll be doing nothing quite a lot of the time, but there'll be the moment when at three o'clock in the morning they get a call telling them they've got to orchestrate a huge amount of music for to be on the stand for the next day. And there's no other way to do it other than with a big team. Well, with these big, I mean, with a big blockbuster, you're talking about films that are nearly three hours long and or, or more. And uh, I know because I have to take my kids to see them. Um, yeah, th- three hours long. And um, you're talking wall-to-wall music that not only has to be written, has to be orchestrated and copied and recorded and mixed. And, you know, t- three hours of music. Well, how long is a symphony? It's 25 minutes? So you've got a month to write, like, six symphonies. Yeah, and that's not even counting the toing and froing, the the picture changes, the all sorts of, of, of new ideas when they do their screenings and the focus groups come back with with lots of lots of feedback and they have to change everything again. There's a there's a there's a process even after it's been written, the music that uh, means it has to be changed and conformed and fiddled with. Yeah, that's part of the problem of of technology um, and how you know film has gone totally digital. Is that it? Basically, means people can mess around with it till literally the curtains are opening. You know, uh, I think the 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 thing that is most misunderstood within the film industry is preservation of musicality. And I remember, um, I'm going to use a rude word, but uh, I got what we call frame fucked by a. Um, D- d- director who's who was literally going all right this scene is so important to me i want to go through it frame by frame by frame and he is like okay so that note take that to the right mute that take that down this should go to the left all of and so he was treating the music like there were sound it was like you would sound effects and then i just i just knew i just i was like okay well you've you've just got to learn learn the hard way so we got to the end. He went, okay. So let's listen to it back. And he just went, hang on, what's happened? That's not that's not what I said. And I said, no, no, this is this is exactly what we've done. And he goes, but why why does it sound like that? I said, because it's not music anymore. And it was like it was 
he, you could see that he couldn't he couldn't handle it couldn't ha- handle that concept but it's not sound it's, it's music you mentioned just now the the idea of being head of the music department and do you think that perhaps that sense of of being in charge of a team as a composer has helped you in business and in terms of of working with lots of people at Spitfire? Um, Possibly. Again, I just think it's about, I think that being conditioned, going back to the beginning, being conditioned from an early age, that this is an industry and it's a job. And um, I think, you know, certainly within the composing world, um, you you get a lot of incredibly interesting egos who are composers, and it's um, it's it, I, I just simply because I grew up with it. It's like, but you're just a cog in a machine. It's you know, and and if you're not if you're not running smoothly, the machine's gonna thing, and they'll put another cog in. Um, and yes, and I think that there's a degree of pragmatism to the business as well. Um, and you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, working with like someone in marketing in my business and and they'll say oh no we, we can't do that we need the music first because um you know you can't just put any old piece of music on you're just like what are you talking about it's the it's that's the way it's done just find a bit of music you like cut to it and then give it to me once once the, the library that i'm you know helping you promote is ready and then i'll i'll recompose it um, so it's just nice. It's nice taking that that experience in. But as for running a business, bloody hell, it's um, it's it's absolutely terrifying. Have you learned a lot through doing it? Have you, have you had to? Yes, lots of interesting things like the Dunbar number. I don't know if you've heard of that. I have heard of it. I don't. I understand it. It's it's the maximum number of humans that you can know, know kind of oh, right. their first name, that they maybe have one or two kids. Um, so when you grow a business, there is suddenly put this point where you're not a bunch of mates. And it's the point, it's the, exactly the same for chimpanzees, apparently. It's the same number. I think it's just under 100. And it's the point at which, um, I don't know what they call a collective noun for chimps, but it's the point at which tribes have to split because it's the point at which people start ripping e- each other off. So with humans, it's the point at which you have to uh, introduce um, bureaucracy. And 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 that's happens with a company. At first, it's a you're 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 all in it together. It's a startup, and then suddenly there's someone doing something with someone else, and they don't know each other. And that person goes, actually, I've got a really mad, mad hangover. I'm not going to go into work today. And that person is let down. And so you have to put bureaucratic and project management stuff into that um, because people stop being human with each other. So and then there's Price's Law, which is I think it's Price's Law, which is fantastic. Which is people, uh, people of 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 great ability, are promoted to a point of uh, maximum inability. Right. So you've got someone who's amazing at this job naturally just gets promoted into a management role, and it's like, well, they're a nerd. They're not going to be very good at managing people. <laughs> totally introverted. So yeah, it's it's really it's really tough in that respect, and then also the sense of responsibility. You know, there was a point where we went to a like a trampoline park for a Christmas uh, party, and there was about thirty members of staff at that point, and the only people who were really not enjoying it was myself and my co-founder, going, "Oh my god, look at all of these mouths we have to feed," 
And then they start having children. You're like, stop it! <laughs> and there's now 120 of us. So it's, it's a, it's a, yeah, people buying houses and getting mortgages and it's, it's a, it's a really big deal. Um, and I, I know things have been a bit turbulent recently with with Spitfire. Just if you're, if you feel comfortable, to tell me a bit about where you're at with that now. Yeah, I, I, I questioned something that is um it's just a subject that whenever it's brought up for debate it's it's shut down and what i didn't realize was that if you're not careful on social media um it, certainly as a kind of a figurehead of a business it can have a massive impact not on our business, but just on the people within it. And as I think I mentioned to you before, Tom, what I've learned is that the internet is not a network. It's a series of echo chambers that are loosely tethered together. And we curate our own echo chambers. So you follow people you agree with on Twitter. You follow people you like. And I think this is why we've got this new tribalism, because people actually can't believe that people think maybe entirely differently from you. Um, so it's, it's classic Twitter storm. Everything was taken out of context, even though I had prefaced it with, as a father, I'm a bit worried about this. And um, as a consequence, it was misunderstood. But also, I think, of the many things we can do to empathise with our fellow human beings, um, it is impossible to truly empathise with parenthood if you haven't had a kid. And the utter anguish and the just the sheer panic that you're doing it all wrong. And that's all it was about. And unfortunately, uh, people are un unwilling to accept that. They just feel that you are, you're wrong. And, um, and so it, it's been really, really tricky. But I mean, I don't really, I don't particularly also want, I mean, I, what I've learned is that you can't, you can't correct these arguments online. Um, this is something to talk about down in the pub over a beer. Um, and there are just lots of worried parents out there who don't, who just don't know where to turn. And, and I'm one of those. Well, also, because also, because we're adults, we know how much we think our fair parents fucked us up. <laughs> so you're not, not only are you, you just kind of got that terror and fear of keeping your kids alive. It's like, I really don't want them to dislike me when I'm on my deathbed. <laughs> Um, sorry to be morbid, Tom, but it's just, um, yeah, and no one warns you about the nightmares that you have. The nightmares are just, it was very interesting. I've I've always suffered from anxiety and, and paranoia, and I never understood the point of it until my little boy picked up a little figure. We were going out. He picked up a little figure, and I had this notion of crossing a busy road and him dropping the figure, running back to get it, me releasing my grip and him getting run over, which is absolutely effing awful and i suddenly went ah oh, that's what par paranoia is for and i just said no no leave that just leave that on the side joe honestly please and i didn't say because that might kill you <laughs> but it's that's what that's what paranoia and, and anxiety is about yeah well it's it's evolutionary isn't it it's um yeah poking your head out of the cave and finding that you know bears there yeah woolly <laughs> mammoths about to trample your family to death <laughs> but i think it's often 
especially in Built for Musicians, who are often very introspective and constantly analysing the way we feel about what we're doing. I, I think that that level of analysis can really amplify those feelings of paranoia and anxiety. Yeah. Look, Chris, you've been so generous with your time. I just wondered, as we as we draw this to a close, as someone who's been so good about nurturing new talent and and taking care of your employees and your musicians, what's the best piece of advice you could give to someone starting out in this business now? You never arrive, so you have to, you should try and make the journey. As someone said the other day, it's like we're all we're all. There's only one destination, and that's death. <laughs> so you may, might as well enjoy the journey. Um, and I think that I think being open-minded and allowing yourself to be distracted and to go into cul-de-sacs or different paths is really important. What I see a lot of is, you, you see it writ large on X Factor, people who have decided what their path is and what their destination is. And you are basically going to really disappoint yourself because that's not the way life works. So I've wanted to be a film composer since I was five. I didn't go to music college. I became a baker. And that's not the traditional route. Um, but then I started writing music for porn films, which again, you wouldn't think that you'd be nominated for an Ivan Novello at the end of that journey. Um, but I just think that you need to be kind of open-minded. I think your subconscious really does steer you a lot and you, you'll find yourself in the right room at the right time with the right people. And it's something to do with your subconscious has made that happen. But I think that, 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 that it's about enjoying the journey. And even if you kind of go, well, this isn't quite what I was thinking, um, you may get there in the end. You know, there are Oscar-winning um, composers who were music editors there are look, look at someone like ben valfish was a uh, orchestrated for dario and conducted for, for him for uh, many many years and was just he was patient um and he he just enjoyed that process and, and learned so much from it so i mean a great example is like people who want to be engineers i mean that's a really that is honestly it's like dead man's shoes you just have to wait for someone to retire and there'll be a space for you as a as an engineer however the entertainment industry cannot find uh, sound recordists for love nor money. And it's a totally connected um, thing. And, you know, going on set and recording actors, that sounds like a fun little kind of diversion. So I think just be really open-minded. Yeah, be open-minded and embrace the journey. What a, what a lovely way to put it. Yeah, and I mean, I think that, I mean, I've been wanting to do this since I was five and I've, I've had five-year-olds, about three of them, and they're idiots. They're in no, no position to make career choices. We're so obedient to these idiotic five-year-olds that we were when we were younger. And I think that, you know, turns out writing music for robots and action and space is a bit boring. But, you know, a, a waxed-moustached Belgian detective, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Look, Chris, I must thank you so much. It's lovely to speak to you and just a real joy to hear your, your insight um, thank you so much Tom it's been an absolute pleasure thank you well that's the wonderful Chris Henson subscribe review whatever whatever it is you're supposed to do um, but most importantly join me again soon take care
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.